Welcome to episode two of Between the Bills, for bodies out of control. My name is Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm a journalist living in Macon, Georgia. Being in the Deep South, I get a first-hand look at the duality in sexual politics that we have here. With oppressive, conservative leadership comes transformative social justice work. So in this podcast, I'm highlighting the activists who are doing the work where it's needed most. Here, in their own homes, where we're often left out of national and traditionally progressive movements. Real quick, I want to let y'all know that some of the content in today's episode may be upsetting or triggering to some folks. We'll be discussing infertility, miscarriage, medical trauma, fat phobia, and mental illness, including anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. So please listen with caution and be safe. In episode one, we talked about abortion access with a lobbyist from Atlanta-based Feminist Women's Health Center, a clinic and advocacy group. They've been fighting the six-week abortion ban imposed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, and the episode came out just after a glimmer of hopeful news broke. The ban was temporarily blocked from taking effect in 2020 by Judge Steve Jones of the United States District Court. He called for a preliminary injunction, which prevents it from becoming law, at least while the higher courts are still debating whether it's constitutional. Spoiler alert, it isn't. Reproductive justice is about more than legal access to abortion. It also means ensuring everyone has the financial and personal ability to freely make choices about their bodies and lives in general. And that includes support for those living with reproductive health issues like polycystic ovarian syndrome, often called PCOS, a hormonal disorder that can cause pelvic pain, infertility, and menstrual irregularities. September just ended, so PCOS Awareness Month just ended too, which was nationally recognized in 2018 thanks to activists from Georgia, but we'll get to that in a minute. PCOS is vastly underreported and under-researched, but current estimates suggest that anywhere between 10 and 20% of folks with a uterus live with this disease. People with marginalized gender identity struggle to access compassionate, competent medical care nationwide, but the South is notorious for it. 79 of Georgia's 159 counties do not have a single OBGYN. And in terms of maternal mortality, a pregnant person in Georgia has a greater chance of dying before or immediately after delivery than any other state in the country at over 40 deaths per 100,000 live births. These numbers spike even higher if they're a person of color. According to the ACLU, the maternal death rate for black women in Georgia is twice that for white women in Georgia, and six times the rate for white women nationally. This podcast usually focuses on Georgia politics, but many of these issues affect the entire South. In Texas, where the folks I'm talking to in this episode live, maternal mortality is estimated at 14.6 deaths per 100,000 births, and twice as many black mothers are affected as white mothers, just as in Georgia. Aside from access to reproductive care in general, one of the problems with PCOS is how badly it's misunderstood by patients and medical professionals. I had a doctor's visit this summer where I asked my OBGYN if the symptoms I'd been experiencing, periods lasting up to three weeks, pelvic pain, and my hair falling out in the shower, aligned with endometriosis. Endo is a condition that can present similarly to PCOS, but is fundamentally very different. One of my aunts and a cousin have endo, and I know it has a genetic link, so I thought this was the most likely situation. But instead, I came away with a diagnosis of PCOS, which I didn't even know existed before I walked in the door, and never got a satisfactory explanation as to how it differs from endo or how she knew which one I had without doing any tests. In this episode of Between the Bills, I spoke with Jamie Knopfler, a reproductive surgeon based in Houston, Texas, which is another southern state that mirrors Georgia politically a lot of the time, to help demystify that science. 
You'll also hear from writer Catherine Fusco, who reads from her piece The Beautiful Monstrousness of Motherhood, an amazing essay on the film Aliens, PCOS, and Motherhood here at Pulp Magazine. Some women identify with Ripley, not me. I'm with that baby-obsessed xenomorph all the way. The alien and I, we know what it's like to worry about eggs. And I also talked to Chrissy D, an author and advocate living with both illnesses, endo and PCOS, who also lives in Texas. Like living a pain-free life almost that is like a unicorn to me. Like, is that in storybooks? Who is this? Like, will I become like a Disney princess if I live a pain-free life? Chrissy has lived with both conditions since she was about 11 years old. Getting diagnosed took decades, and at the age of 33, she still hasn't found a lasting treatment that works for her. She suffered from acne, weight changes, excruciating pelvic pain, vomiting during her periods, super long and heavy periods, debilitating fatigue, infertility, and mental health challenges. But she says that sometimes she can't tell which condition is causing which symptoms to present, which can make it even more difficult to figure out a treatment plan and then to monitor what's working and what isn't. That's the fun game of having endometriosis and PCOS is when your body starts doing something negative, you're like, which one is it? You're always trying to figure out what is a symptom, what is not a symptom. Is it endometriosis? Is it PCOS? Sometimes they share the same symptoms. Sometimes they have different symptoms. The treatment plan sometimes is different. According to Dr. Nodler, they're easy to mix up, but PCOS and endometriosis operate completely differently. Endo occurs when cells that are supposed to grow inside the uterus or the endometrium implant other places in the pelvis, like the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, or the inner walls of the abdomen. This can be extremely painful, as every month when the endometrium thickens in preparation for menstruation, those misplaced cells and the lesions they can cause also grow and get inflamed. This, in turn, can lead to infertility by causing scarring and preventing the egg and sperm from meeting. PCOS also causes pelvic pain and is the leading cause of infertility, but the reasons why are vastly different from what's going on with endo. Dr. Nodler explained that nobody's exactly sure what causes either PCOS or endo, but while endo is definitely a reproductive issue, PCOS is a hormonal or endocrine issue with reproductive effects. Folks with PCOS have higher levels of androgens, which are hormones considered male hormones, like testosterone. That means the brain doesn't send the body the right messages to prepare for pregnancy or a menstrual cycle so that can stop or disrupt your entire cycle in ovulation and then cause infertility. And also, as the name suggests, many folks with PCOS have multiple cysts on their ovaries, although, confusingly enough, a lot of people might not have any. And this maybe, could be, conundrum sits right at the crosshairs of the most difficult thing about endometriosis and PCOS. It is so hard to get a diagnosis. Here's Chrissy discussing the medical trauma she faced while trying to get an official diagnosis of endometriosis, which can only be confirmed through a surgery called laparoscopy. It's like a small two, three inch, like, you know, cut. They go in with the camera and they look around, you know, they, they did a lot of things that I did not know that they were going to do. I wasn't really told what they were looking for. Like, I know she said, I need to get in there. I need to kind of see what's going on. But I wasn't told that a catheter would be placed. I wasn't told that she was going to do a dye test. 
where they kind of like put the dye into your tube to see if it's flowing or if there's any blockage or anything. I wasn't told that I would be in as much pain as I would. They kind of made it seem like it was a day surgery. I'd kind of be in and out, you know, be back to life as normal. And it literally felt like I had been stabbed in my stomach. I couldn't even like urinate for two days. So I was constantly calling her to try to figure out what what was done. I had never met the doctor at her office. I had always met with her nurse practitioner. So like five minutes, I'm like literally on the table. They're getting ready to put me under and I meet her for the first time. There's no excuse for this lack of communication between providers and patients, but this is actually really, really common. A 2013 study on medical trauma found that one in five women experienced symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder after a gynecological procedure, including childbirth, abortion, and surgeries. Dr. Nodler said part of the reason miscommunication, misdiagnosis, and delayed diagnosis are so common with PCOS specifically is because doctors don't know enough about it. They also tend to view it as a fertility issue rather than as its own disease with complications and symptoms, something that affected Chrissy too. It's crazy because if I would have got pregnant, I don't think I would have got diagnosed because she brushed off all my symptoms until I was like, I hadn't conceived. And I feel like if I would have had a baby sitting at home, then maybe I would another 10 years before being officially diagnosed. There are doctors out there that still like, oh, I, you know, you're fine. And they're not taking people seriously to where they can get treatment in the beginning. So it doesn't have to get worse. It doesn't have to get bad. You don't have to sit a whole year, two years, three years, 10 years suffering in silence until you can finally get diagnosed. Another reason is that doctors aren't as likely to diagnose young folks or folks who don't present with the more typical symptoms. Dr. Nodler said that's partly because doctors hesitate to perform surgery on teens and young adults, but endometriosis, as we mentioned earlier, can only be accurately diagnosed after a laparoscopy. A study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism last year found that at least a third of folks with PCOS spend over two years and go through at least three doctors before getting an established diagnosis. And then only 35% were satisfied with their care, and less than 16% said they received enough information from their doctors upon diagnosis. A muddy, confusing, dismissive diagnosis was also part of Catherine's experience. When I learn about my infertility, I also discover my PCOS diagnosis is something of a black box, not so much a disease as a cluster of symptoms. Writing as and about women is a bit like having a woman's medical problem. When I ask the fertility doctor, a man in his 40s who has wooden letters spelling out the word football on his bookshelf, not a specific team, just football, about not having typical PCOS, He's quick to reassure me that cysts make me a fit and hands me off to the nurse. Chrissy's experience echoes this. And doctors are brushing you off. And I'm like, I get it. In between 11 to 23, I saw more than 50 doctors and specialists and had multiple ultrasounds and MRIs, all these things. And people would just brush it off. And it's just sad that with all this awareness that we've been doing and all these celebrities coming out and saying, I have endometriosis or I have PCOS, the doctors are still being so nonchalant. PCOS can also lead to cosmetic symptoms like persistent acne, hair growth on the chest, breasts, and chin, and hair loss on the scalp and other symptoms like weight gain and insulin resistance. Dr. Nodler's research specifically focuses on endo, PCOS, and their nutritional links, 
so he can explain how PCOS contributes to that. So there's a big nutritional component, and the reason for that is that the fat tissue, the adipose, um, releases its own androgens. Women with PCOS don't process blood sugar correctly, so like carbohydrates, things you find in, um, you know, bread, pastas, uh, things like that. So if they're not processing carbohydrates correctly, they get more fat storage, and then the symptoms of the PCOS get worse. So that's why sometimes you'll hear us tell women, you know, to work on weight loss and lose some of the, the fat tissue because a lot of times that makes them cycle uh, or ovulate more regularly. Many folks with PCOS end up with prediabetes or diabetes as a result of that insulin resistance. And another major part of why many doctors have such a limited understanding of PCOS is the emphasis on weight and nutrition. Dr. Nodler also researched the link between diet and the severity of PCOS symptoms, and he said that can be taken way too far by some providers who recommend crash diets and weight loss as a cure-all. There is kind of a cure of PCOS. I mean, they, I think the patient still has it, but if a woman has, uh, I would say, lower severity disease of PCOS, if they are overweight and they lose that weight, a lot of times the symptoms of PCOS can go away completely. Now, I've seen women that are, you know, uh, 250, 300 pounds, they lose 40, 50 pounds, and losing that adipose tissue like we talked about makes their androgen level go down enough that they no longer have the symptoms of PCOS. And so a lot of times, even without, you know, medication treatment, fertility treatment, whatever, those patients, you know, the acne and the hair growth can go away, they can start to ovulate, and they can get pregnant all on their own. So there is a scientific relationship between weight and the presentation of symptoms, but some providers boil the disease down to nothing but weight, or they recommend weight loss as the first, only, and most important treatment for PCOS. That's exacerbated by what's called weight bias or weight stigma, and it's really common in the healthcare field. A study from January 2018 found that physicians were the top source of weight stigma for women and the second most frequent source for men with 69% of patients experiencing weight bias from their doctors. When doctors have negative attitudes toward fatness and fat bodies, they recommend weight loss as a cure for anything when the patient is larger bodied. They tend to attribute any pain or adverse health experiences to that weight, at the risk of ignoring the symptoms and the underlying conditions that cause them. And to get specific to reproductive health issues, dietitian Kelly Coffey wrote a heartbreaking story for Self Magazine in 2017 about telling her doctor about her horrific period pain when she was a teenager and being told to lose 100 pounds. Her doctor said, and I quote this, lose weight and it will get better. Any weight loss method would be healthier than being that big. Coffey said she didn't see another healthcare provider for years, but when she did, the next doctor found that she had a serious case of endometriosis. Here's the thing. While there is a correlation between PCOS and weight, not all folks with the disorder have an above average BMI. And the language separating those who do and those who don't is fatphobic in and of itself. When she was diagnosed, Catherine Fusco was told she has what's called skinny PCOS. That's literally what medical professionals call it. I will spend my 20s pursuing an academic career with the energy and arrogance of someone whose faith in her body is absolute, certain that children will be available to me when I want them. I have skinny PCOS, which is an infertility humble brag. While I don't have the hirsutism, BMI, or acne of typical PCOS, I do share a similarly rocky ovarian landscape. 
The hormonal disorder is characterized by high androgen levels, irregular absent periods, and cysts on the ovaries. And the symptoms include a fun grab bag of physical and psychological symptoms, including propensity for liver inflammation, uterine cancer, diabetes, anxiety, and depression, and infertility. Those cysts are a bad problem for releasing the eggs necessary for making a baby. Outside of the doctor's office, support groups and social media accounts by and for PCOS patients can venture dangerously far into toxic diet culture for folks with regular PCOS and skinny PCOS alike. When you type endometriosis and PCOS in Google, the first search suggestion is endo and PCOS diet. And when you search endo and PCOS, the first result is an article titled Endometriosis Weight Gain, Causes and How to Lose Weight. When I was diagnosed with PCOS, one of the first things I did was look for a support network through social media. But the way most of them discussed diets, weight, and bodies, especially fat bodies, turned me away from them so fast. PCOS can cause weight gain localized in the abdominal region, and insulin resistance can make losing weight super hard. Because our society is so dedicated to diet culture and talks about fatness in such a disparaging way, those symptoms are part of why negative body image and eating disorders are more common in folks with PCOS and insulin resistance. This toxic messaging throughout society and the media we create isn't helping anyone. Dr. Nodler says that extreme diets are never necessary, and he usually recommends a sort of Mediterranean diet, if anything, which emphasizes veggies and lean proteins mixed with whole grains, but is more adaptable and balanced and doesn't just cut anything out. Part of the reason most doctors don't understand the diet component of PCOS is cultural fat phobia, but there's also just not much emphasis on PCOS in the healthcare field in general. Here's Dr. Nodler again. In OBGYN training, just in residency, we unfortunately don't get that extensive of training on hormonal relationships as those in PCOS. And so that's why I did an extra three-year fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. So I kind of get that a little bit more. You have to have someone that knows how to rule out everything else. So OBGYNs aren't learning about the ins and outs of a super common reproductive illness. And what's more, Funding for reproductive health and women's health is minimal. According to advocacy group PCOS Challenge, PCOS awareness and support organizations receive less than 0.1% of the funding that other health conditions receive. Only a small number of researchers receive funding to study it, and most of the money goes towards studying the infertility side of PCOS. But PCOS comes with some pretty serious complications. Folks diagnosed with it are twice as likely to be hospitalized for heart disease, diabetes, mental health conditions, and cancer of the uterine lining. So things don't get any easier after diagnosis. One of the hardest things about living with chronic illness, especially those characterized by extreme pain, infertility, negative body image, and other symptoms that can be really distressing, is the toll it takes on your mental health. Folks with PCOS are three times more likely to experience depression and anxiety, although Dr. Nodler says doctors aren't sure whether that results from the emotional response of living with chronic illness or from the hormone imbalance itself. Although some data suggests that insulin resistance increases depression and that hormone imbalances in PCOS might affect levels of neurotransmitters like serotonin. And the National PCOS Awareness Association recently partnered with Crisis Text Line, a free 24-7 support hotline you can text for any crisis including addiction, anxiety, assault, depression, eating disorders, self-harm, and suicide. No conversation about healthcare disparities would be complete without delving into the intersections of race, gender, and class when we think about who's able to access care and who isn't. Here's Catherine again. Research for diseases primarily affecting women has always been underfunded, 
The year I begin trying for a second child, NIH lists funding for 2018 infertility research at $124 million. Following the spending chart down the alphabet to inflammatory bowel disease shows $136 million in spending. While PCOS affects nearly twice as many people as IBD, approximately 5 million women, the painful digestive condition receives $45 million more in funding. And PCOS is only one of the many fertility disorders covered by the smaller dollar amount. Anyone who has wended her way through the reproductive industrial complex knows life has a price. Unlike the regular OBGYN, the fertility specialist has a nice office. In the United States, only comparatively rich women have their plumbing worked on in this way. A single IVF cycle, for example, costs anywhere between $10,000 and $15,000. My significantly cheaper entry model of Clomid, hormone patch, trigger shot therapy, and hormone suppositories, plus two office visits a month, ends up being somewhere just under $1,000 each try. When you are paying the big bucks, they give you herbal tea and Milano cookies in the lobby. Neither my husband or I are rich women, so the first time through the process, we take money from my parents who are eager for babies. The second time, we just rack up airline miles. At a certain point, you will learn your price tag. How much is a new life worth to you? On one visit, I am invited to a clinic open house where gift certificates for treatment are raffled as door prizes. So how does all of this relate to the South and to Southern advocates? Besides the fact that the South is a proven dangerous place to be, struggling with fertility issues and reproductive health, a lot of the activism pertaining to these underdiagnosed illnesses actually came from right here in Georgia. In 2017, the Senate passed a bill that federally designated September as PCOS Awareness Month. The bill was led not just by Senator Elizabeth Warren, but also by Republican Georgia State Senator David Perdue. Then in spring 2018, Representative David Scott, a Democrat from Georgia, was one of 28 reps to introduce a House version of that bill. And Sasha Audi, who founded a national advocacy group called PCOS Challenge, lives in the Atlanta suburb of McDonough. She's one of almost half a million Georgia women living with that disease, according to a local news source in Augusta. And this past May, dozens of these women traveled to Washington, D.C. for PCOS Awareness Day, where they advocated further recognition and research. So we're not a state that sits and takes it. We're a state that mobilizes. To join this fight, you can donate to or volunteer with PCOS organizations or use their promotional materials and social media campaigns to help spread the word. The PCOS Awareness Association and PCOS Challenge are the two largest, and PCOS Challenge in particular puts a lot of services towards advancing research into the disease. On an international scale, you can look to the Androgen Access and PCOS Society. And if you suspect that you have PCOS yourself, the Awareness Association will be especially helpful in finding a provider near you that's been recommended by other PCOS patients, so you can avoid the misunderstanding. Links to all those organizations and more can be found in the description for this podcast episode on SoundCloud and over at Pulp Magazine. Let's pretend we don't have feelings. And that's it for episode two of Between the Bills. I'll be back on November 1st with another discussion on sexual politics and reproductive justice activism in the South. Again, I want to thank the band Gamus for sharing their song, Let's Pretend We Don't Have Feelings, with us for this podcast. You can check them out on Spotify by searching G-A-Y-M-O-U-S. For the first episode, go back and listen to it on SoundCloud, Spotify, or online at Pulp Magazine on Medium. 
Just search medium.com slash pulpmag. And while you're there, get a taste of our other content, like a weekly playlist, personal essays about sex, sexuality, and reproductive justice, and plenty of other stuff for and of the body. If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Medium, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Trust me, it's worth the squeeze.